the director's podium. I'm your host, Adam Christie. People, I am so excited. We're in our new studio. You see, it's so cool. We have the mountains behind us. Can you believe that? It's not really the mountains. If you look right here, you'll see we actually have a green screen, but we're back at mountains. See? Very cool. Okay. Um, so a huge problem in the world today is poverty. And a huge um, factor in that is poverty and how it affects education. And then, therefore, how that affects our world. Now, you're saying, uh, yeah, that is a problem. What do we do about it? Well, we've brought on an expert to talk to us today about poverty and poverty in education. Um, our guest is amazing. He's written over 30 books. He's going to tell you more about himself as we go, but his book, Teaching with Poverty in Mind and Poor Students, Rich Teaching, are both available on Amazon. So, would you please welcome our guest, Dr. Eric Jensen. Dr. Jensen, thanks so much for being with us today. It's a pleasure. It's good to be here. Great. Um, you know, let's just start at the macro. Let's just start with the big question. Do you think poverty in our country is fixable? Uh, the answer is yes. It takes resources. And one of those resources is the will to make it happen. We haven't had that for all of our country's history, but it's doable, it's fixable, and it can be done. Is it easy? No. Does it require money? Yes, but there's never been a shortage of money for other things. And many of the laws that are needed are already in place. What it takes is people having the will to make it happen. Our country would be more amazing if we were able to decrease the amount of poverty in our country and to raise more people out of poverty to middle income or upper income. And it's totally doable. So what is it that made you so passionate about this and write about it? What was it about this subject that you were like, you know, I, I'm really going to invest myself in this? A couple of things had to come together for me. One of them was that I'd been what you might call a brain junkie for a couple of decades, and I still am. Um, so I started digging into the research on how our brain works many years ago, and I began to, to, uh, to put on trainings and teach a workshop called Teaching with the Brain and Mind. My wife and I actually put on 19 separate mind-brain conferences, and I put on trainings for educators in the area of teaching with the brain and mind. So the first ingredient was my interest in how the brain worked. Over the years, more and more teachers would come up to me and said, hey, I work with kids from poverty. Would you think that their brains might be different? <laughs> and the first time I heard that, I said, wow, I'll bet they are. And I started digging into that. The next event that happened was I uh, did my doctoral work on poverty. And so just doing the research on poverty helped me start understand what we're up against. I did my dissertation on five schools that were high poverty and high performing and five schools that were high poverty and low performing to suss out what were the differences between those two clusters of schools. And I think the third thing was just my own background. 
I grew up in a real crappy environment. It was lower middle class. It was not poverty. But I grew up with adverse childhood experiences that I could empathize with many kids. For example, I had uh, a divorce when I was two. I had a father who had three more wives. So I grew up with a stepmother who was alcoholic, abusive, and violent. We moved a lot. So for me, starting in school, I ended up in San Diego going to nine schools and I had 153 teachers because every time the violence would get too bad at home, my dad would move myself out and my sister, who lived in the garage to stay away from the violence, move us out and we'd go live with my grandma for a few months and then my evil stepmom would promise to be good and we'd move back and then the whole thing would repeat and we'd move out and live with my aunt or uncle for a few months. I'd go to a new school. She'd promise to be good. We'd move back. Things got bad again. We'd move out and uh, I'd go to a new school. So all this time I was going through chaos, abuse at home, chronic stress, at school, I couldn't think straight. My only question was, what will, will it be like when I go home from school? That's how I thought. I was in survival mode every day. So doing PhD work on it, being a brain junkie, got me to start investigating all this. And there was a point at which I said, wow, things are different inside the brain for kids who grow up in poverty. Because I didn't even experience the racism of being a person of color, and I still got a taste of how bad things could be. So when I was in school, teachers expected very little of me. They usually would suspend me or send me to the principal because I was poorly behaved. And certainly, they didn't invest in me at all. I was a pain in the rear. I was a discipline problem. So I know what it's like when teachers come across as if they don't care. Most teachers just wanted me out of their classroom. So that kind of created these ingredients for which it was perfect for me to say, wow, this is a population at school that I want to invest in. So you're talking about poverty at school. One, how, till what age or what grade would you say you were a discipline problem? All the way through school. Oh, okay. So I was, I, I, I never had what you'd call a typical school experience. I just moved from school to school to school. We moved from residence to residence to residence, living with you know relatives. And so for me, even anything I could do to get out of school, get out of the house and be on my own, I did that. So even my last year in school, I was going to summer school between 11th and 12th grade where we moved again. I started a new school for my 12th grade high school, and I accumulated enough credits in the summer so that I could graduate mid-year so that I could get out of school and get out of the home and work so I could pay my own way. So the answer is, uh, I never was what you would call a good student in school. I graduated with a C-plus average, and that allowed me to get into a local state college in San Diego. Now, when you talk about high poverty schools, what are the factors that make a school high poverty? So in general, that means you have somewhere uh, 75% or more. In my studies, the doctoral work I did, I made the criteria 80% or more of the kids uh, have been designated uh, as being from 
uh, poverty and uh, being in the free and reduced lunch program. So it had to be 80% or more. And those schools I selected from five diverse locations with diverse populations in three different time zones. So high poverty meant four out of five kids at the school were from poverty. And uh, so high performing meant that they're also in the top 20% of the schools in their states in their academic standing or the bottom 20% in the state in their academic standing. So I looked for extreme things. Uh -huh. So what was different at the school was pretty stunning. Uh, the staff collaborated when they're at the higher performing schools. They supported each other. They worked together. They looked for solutions and not excuses. Uh, in general, they didn't get more funding than the lower performing schools. The leadership was real clear that staff had higher expectations of the kids. Like you could, you could just hang around the staff and in, in 20 minutes you could tell which staff worked at which school. Now, do you think that is what causes low-performing schools? Or do you think because it's a low-performing school, that's the kind of staff it attracts? Ah, it's a good question. Chicken and egg uh, question. So I would say that solving the problem of poverty at school is important to consider what is happening on our outside world, what's happening in the culture, like what's in the media and all of the cultural awareness that's going on. That shows up at school where kids are starting to raise their hand more and say, yeah, what about me? So I don't think that we can make a causal assumption that if your school has, has kids from poverty, well, that explains how the staff is because uh, there are schools that have had kids who were high performing and they were high performing, but when the kids switched out, then the teacher scores dropped, not because they couldn't do it, but because some of them couldn't make the adjustments. And by the way, I won't tell you it's easy. What I'll say for most teachers is that it requires doing these enormous shifts. Like before, they didn't have to focus on locking in and raising kids' expectations because if you're already doing well, you typically have high expectations. But when kids are showing up at your school and they have had low expectations, suddenly teachers are doing the, the groundwork to get kids to believe in themselves. Because many kids will just sit there like this. Why? Because nobody ever believed in them. So they don't put out the effort. So there's a whole lot of chicken and egg stuff. Meaning if the kid shows a little bit of potential, then some teachers get more interest in them and they're, they're kinder, they're more supportive. If some kids don't show potential, then teachers just move on to the next kid thinking that that kid doesn't have potential. In other words, yes, there's chicken and egg stuff, but there's also staff that understand that when your population changes, you better change. And that's the biggest issue I see when I go from school to school. I've been to over 300 Title I schools around the country and many times the teachers say to me, well, it used to be different. We used to have kids from our own community. Now we're getting kids that are coming in that are immigrants. In other words, there's always a story. And the story about it is followed with, and that means that the kids, ba -dum -ba -dum -ba -dum, are the problem. 
So whenever somebody's going like this and they're pointing fingers, you know that that staff's not going to do well because everybody gets 24 hours a day, whether you work at a high-performing school or a low-performing school. So the teachers at high-performing, high-poverty schools, they get the job done in the 24 hours they have. And those that are at the low-performing schools will say things like, we just don't have time for this, or we can't do this. We don't have the funding, or we don't have this. So you can tell that there's a little bit of everything. There's often poor leadership at the school. There's often teachers who haven't been trained about what to do differently. Teachers who get stuck and they don't have the appropriate staff development. Teachers who don't have cultural awareness. Teachers who may have biases that play out in their workplace. Stories they tell in their heads, like stories like, well, you know, the, 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 the apple doesn't far, fall far from the tree. Like, that's another way of saying you can't change kids who are low performing. And of course, it's a bunch of crap because teachers do it all the time. Kids change all the time. As I said, I was a C plus average in high school. And when I went to college and on my path, once I got started in college, getting study skills, I bumped my grades up by becoming a better student so that I never again was not on the dean's list. So I went from a C-plus student to becoming a dean's list student through skill building. Mm. Now, I had to change my mindset, too. But you have to understand that when teachers say they can't, they can't, they can't, the person they're really talking about is themselves. And by the way, I'm not telling people it's easy. I'm not telling people it's a piece of cake. I've seen the staff and work with staff at high-performing schools these are teachers that show up every day. They know the plan. They have meetings that are focused. They work together with kids that are struggling. They'll all have brainstorm. How do we do this? What could we do differently? So I'll never tell anybody that it's an easy solve, but I will tell you that it's doable. Dr. Jensen, I'm going to stop you right there because you said something so profound. You said that when teachers say they can't, they can't, they can't, they're actually talking about themselves. Can you just expand upon that a little bit more? Yes. We often ask teachers to have high expectations of their kids, but many teachers who struggle never show up the first day, first week, the first month of school and say to kids, Hey, this year, what I'm working on in my own life is, in other words, their personal life is about status quo. But the teachers who are successful with kids, they'll often do things like show up and say, hey, guess what? I've decided this year I'm going to walk in a 5K. Or this year I've decided that I'm going to complain less. So my goal is to complain never more than five minutes a day or whatever. And they share that with their kids and they track it with their kids. So when the teacher says, you can do this too, there's an authenticity about it. The kids are saying, my teacher's doing this. I can do this too. The kids are saying higher expectations are doable. If the teacher really believed in high expectations, they would show uh, Zoom meetings or podcasts 
of others who grew up in poverty and were highly successful. They would show kids of color who grew grow up into kids who graduate from high school with honors or kids who struggled in school who went off to become, you know, whether artists, athletes, teachers, uh, you know, bricklayers, you name it. They would bring those in to talk to their kids and say, this is doable. You can do that. But the ones who struggle, they don't do that. You know why? Because they're struggling too. For some, just getting through every week is hard for them. And if you ask me why, I'll say that's a different conversation. But the short answer is many people may be struggling with a relationship, struggling with their health, struggling with their own kids. So when they come to school, they don't have this vibrant charge ahead energy that many kids need. They need a role model that's going to inspire them. And for many teachers, it's a grind and it's hard for them to do what the kids need. So that's why I say it's not easy, but I'll tell you, kids need a teacher who believes in them and who walks the talk. Okay, can we just play a little game of effectiveness, actually? If I were to name a possible solution on a scale from 1 to 10, can you tell me um, which you think would have the biggest effect on changing poverty in schools? Okay, so um, 10 being the most effective and 0 being no effect at all. Uh, scale from one to 10, how effective would more money to those schools be? It would be a, uh, about a seven, meaning helpful, but not critically necessary. Okay. How about, um, administration? Uh, strong leadership is a difference maker. I would say it's probably close to a nine. Okay. How about teachers? Same I'd give to them, probably a nine for teachers. In other words, the staff at the staff who's high performing at one school, if you could switch them out, if you took them to another school that was struggling, probably within a year or two, they would have those students succeeding well too. Um, how about parents? Parents are uh helpful when they're on the mark, uh, but not necessarily critical. They fall in the same category as money. I would give strong parental support a seven, meaning your school can do it without the support, but it's harder. How about uh, what is the impact of school free and reduced lunches? Is there any impact to that? Well, for some kids, the impact is big, and for others, it's a non-issue. What do I mean by that? Some kids don't even eat what's offered, meaning they just pass up on the food. And others, it's uh, a staple of their diet. So uh, I guess you'd say for some, it's a 9 out of 10, and for some kids, it's about a 4. So that's a mixed bag. Okay, so what can teachers do? If they're in a low poverty school, what can they do to turn this thing around? I think the first uh, thing that teachers can do who work at low poverty schools is to start asking themselves, what is it I don't know 
that I need to know so that I can spend the same number of hours or less, but get a bigger result. So translated, that might mean, how am I using my minutes every day? So now we now know things that we didn't know 15 years ago or 20 years ago. For example, when you give feedback like this, students do better than if you do it like this. One way you get a minimal result, the other way you get a really strong result. Example, if I said to a student, good job, low result. But if I said to another student, I love that strategy you use, that's going to help you get into that college you applied for. So notice the first one was general and the second one was specific. And it said why, like that will help you do X, Y, Z in the future. So the first thing I'd say with teachers is, Start learning how to spend your same, same minutes more effectively. A second thing I'd say to do was to get to know your students on a different level than how you know them now. For example, some students need you as a go-to-bat ally for them, and it might be 5% of your kids, and it might be 20% of your kids. Not all of them, but some of them need to know you're going to stand up for them. They need to know that you'll stay after school and help them. They need to know that you'll help them find a website. In other words, they need you to play the role of the world's best grandparent or something for them, or they're going to quit on you. Like if you don't play, put that hat on and play that role, they'll quit. And when I started teaching, I literally didn't look for that in kids. I didn't look for that body language that showed they don't have any hope. But teachers have to look for that body language where kids just show that hopelessness and connect with them and to identify with that and to say, wow, it looks like you've kind of, well, tell me what's going on. Notice that I identified that they were kind of in a funk, but I didn't label it. Like, never pretend to know what other people are thinking. Because when you're wrong, people don't like that. Like, if you say, I can tell you're feeling pretty angry. They say, I'm not angry. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I usually say, it looks like you're kind of, and then I prompt them to see if they'll tell me. And usually that shows, hey, this person cares and they want to know how I feel. So I'd say do things that are more effective. I would say connect with the lowest 20% of kids that are struggling the most. I'd also say use more activities and energizers than you think you'd need as opposed to more repetition, more repetition. Because what the students tell us in surveys is that they tell us that most of the time, they're bored out of their minds because teachers dump them down the curriculum because they expect so little of us. On average, teachers lose 500 hours a year in the classroom dumbing down stuff that kids already know. They already know. That gets squandered. So when teachers tell me they don't have time, I'd say you do. Use your time better. Connect with the lowest performing students on a personal level. and Stop dumbing it down. Make things more challenging with buy-in and connection. That'd be three steps you could do. Like you could do 20 things, but three things that would get a start. 
we would love it if you had strong leadership at your school, but that's different. Right. Um, so it's, do, do you have to have more energy to be a teacher at one of these high poverty schools? My short answer is yes. Teachers who show up at work with fatigue, chronic stress, um, or they've lost, you know, that edge, that enthusiasm. Kids read that. They see that in their teacher. So their teacher is supposed to be the one that's supposed to help them move forward. It's supposed to help them do better in life. It's supposed to help them graduate from high school with hope and promise. And if their teacher seems tired or fatigued or chronically stressed, then the, the kids start thinking, game over. So I would say the answer is yes. And the teachers that are good at what they do, they're pretty good at what you would call self-care. They know how to look after themselves. They know how to be energetic. They take care of themselves so that they can show up and charge ahead as just being a ball of fire every day for kids. And it becomes something that plays into itself. The more energy you have, the more your kids have. So it's a nice self-fulfilling prophecy. You have more energy. It brings out more energy in your kids. So what about administration? What about those school leaders that kind of steer the ship? What can they do? I think the first thing is that they have to find a really strong, why are we doing that? And to create a school-wide mission, a personal mission, because the teachers that are successful, it shows up over and over and over. They are more mission-driven than they are job-driven. They are more why-driven than they are for a bigger paycheck. In other words, they're in this to transform the lives of their kids. Everything else, just get out of my way. That's why they wake up in the morning to come to school and make miracles happen. So leaders tap into that. They fuel that. They ask those teachers to share why do they come to work every day. The teachers help the staff create a strong why. And a strong why might be getting them to say, what's the one thing that we all want to come to school for every day? For example, one high-performing high poverty school I worked with, their school motto was every, and it was a combined middle and high school. Their motto was every student will be the first in family history to go to college. Now, I don't believe every kid should go to college, but it was a public school and they can choose whatever mission everybody decides on. And that was their mission. What they said is that that's why we come to school every day as a staff, because they know what our mission is and they want to go to college. By the way, over 95% of the kids at this 100% poverty school get a scholarship and go off to college every single year. And they're ranked number nine in the state of California out of 10,400 schools. Academically, they're ranked number nine, even though they have 100% of the kids from poverty. And they're ranked every year as a top 100 high school in the country. My takeaway from this is the staff doesn't wonder, what am I doing at this job? Or I hate my job. They're mission-oriented. The second thing is that the administration and the staff have a clear path. They know exactly 
what to do when this happens. They know what curriculum that we're offering. They know what goes in, what goes out. They know what professional development. In other words, everybody knows the plan and they just plug and play every year. They know what works and they stick to it. Now there's always tweaking, but everyone knows the plan. The third thing is the leader's job is to support the staff. So there's a strong why, there's a clear plan, and there's support by leadership that is the one that'll walk into a classroom, observe, and give positive feedback on what they like. And teachers can win just through things like fun drawings and all that, win a half hour off during the day because the principal will go in and take over their class. So they get a half hour to put their feet up or to get a massage or something. You got to have leaders that have your back. Those three things, a strong why, clear path, and support will go a long ways at a school. I'll never say that fixes everything. Schools are complex environments, but that's a pretty good start. So I want, I want you to bring this down to another level, okay? Not, uh, okay, so a student, a student who knows somebody that is struggling in poverty, um, but that's a friend of theirs. What can they do? Ah, uh, I think the first step is to ensure that that student gets a voice within a small collaborative team at school. Most schools have their kids, even at the lower grade levels, like, you know, kindergarten through second grade, have a cooperative group of four students. The first thing is, can the student talk about what's going on? Sometimes just getting it out of their head every day is a start. Sometimes knowing that other students will listen will be the start of the issue. Sometimes having a, uh, a student that's doing well in a class that can be their buddy support at school can be helpful. As in, if they don't know how to do something, they can turn to a friend. Sometimes what they need is within a small cooperative group for them to get roles that they can play that can help build their confidence, such as they may be coming the person who is a summarizer, a person who is the energizer leader, or a person who is the team leader, so that they start learning to take a stand for something. So you're really trying to go after them having a voice to have a sense of belonging, to build confidence, because these are the small little tweaks that over time enable them to have what you call agency, meaning they have a sense of I'm good enough to move forward. If there is bigger issues like a kid who is being abused at home and so forth, those are usually conversations that need to happen with a teacher or a counselor to make sure that special services may be uh, needed to get involved in this. But the take-home message is you have to be willing every day at your school to go after small wins that can help nudge students forward just so they have a voice that they feel more agency and that they can take actions that matter. Do you think that um, low poverty schools should pay their teachers more so that they get a higher quality teacher there? 
Well, there are many things that have been tried and researched, as in if you compared schools that are high poverty, where they give teachers performance bonuses, sign-up bonuses, or more pay versus schools who don't do that, and the bottom line is the correlation is low, meaning it's not causal. Would teachers appreciate that? You bet. Many teachers in certain states are dreadfully underpaid. And if I had my wish, that would stop in a heartbeat. I mean, there are new teachers who are asked to teach in schools of poverty in some states where they're literally starting off at poverty rates, meaning they're in poverty and they're a teacher, like 25000 a year. And there are many teachers in certain states where the teacher average salary is seventy-five to 80000 a year for all teachers. So there's a huge state-by-state-by-state difference. And it's not causal, meaning you don't have t- all of the teachers who are being paid 85000 being highly effective and all the ones that are be paid less, less effective. Would it help? Yes, I would vote for it. But I don't think it's it solves the problem for it. I do like it when teachers have access to resources. So I'm going to give a, uh, a website that's free for them where they can get some cool resources. All right. Uh, many of you who have already followed me or heard of me know my website is jensenlearning.com. So that's easy to find online. You can just Google my name. Uh, jensenlearning.com slash equity, E-Q-U-I-T-Y dash resources. Go to that website, and there are 12 different things that you can download for free, no strings attached. They include things such as energizers you could use in your classroom. They include things such as equity tools you can use. They include things such as how to notice biases in your teaching. They include things such as tools for uh, lesson planning. In other words, these are things that make your job easier. They're free. They're easy to download. You don't have to buy a thing from them. If you're interested in that, that's one way to get yourself kind of fueled with the kinds of things that I talk about. For example, energizers that you can do in your classroom that are free and cost nothing. So jensenlearning.com slash equity dash resources. Have at it and go for it. Well, we certainly appreciate that, and we appreciate all of your hard work in this. Um, And we appreciate the teachers at home and the administrators who are listening that are um, at all schools, but in particularly high-poverty schools that are giving every ounce of effort they can to make their kids' lives better. In closing... um, What is some inspiring encouragement if you could talk to every high-poverty teacher and administrator out there? What encouragement would you give? The the first message I have is nobody is born a teacher. You hear that expression like, oh, she was just a born teacher, whatever. No babies know how to teach. (laughs) What I'm saying is, is that becoming amazing in a classroom is doable. It's doable. I'll never tell people it's easy, but I'll tell you it's doable. Most of the things in life that are valuable take time, and most of them are hard work. For example, 
a good marriage, buying a home, uh, having a skill set, learning to play a musical instrument, becoming an athlete. Most everything that's hard is worth doing, and it takes time. To become a great teacher, getting your paperwork on it, getting your credential, that's just the official part. Be willing to do hard work every day and push yourself. Nobody's a born teacher. Be willing to grow and you can do this. There are hundreds of high-performing, high-poverty schools around the country, and there's nothing magical about them. Teachers there personally grow every day. My question for you is, are you a better teacher than you were last year, or are you just a year older? If you're better, you're on the path. If you're just a year older, you just got more wrinkles. So I'm going to invite you to be the person that grows every year. You're not just more experienced, but you're better at what you do. You're the teacher that's going to make a big difference when you grow. So stay on that path to grow, and you can make the magic happen in your classroom too.